CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, While NPR News was playing, I was looking around my uh, home studio, which is a uh, an extra bedroom in our house. I share this with our two dogs, Pepper and Uncle Gus. And I, I have a sign on the wall that says, Coronavirus, Shelter in Place, Political Rewind, Remotes. And I have the weeks that we've been doing it. And I just realized that midway through this week, I had not changed it. It is now week 27 of our doing Political Rewind uh, uh, by remote. And of course, all of our panelists continue to join us uh, by remote as well. I'm going to introduce a terrific panel in just a minute, but I I do have a couple of uh, items I want to address very quickly first. Yesterday, in our conversation about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I made the statement that she will become the first woman in American history to lie in state at the U.S. Capitol. A number of you uh, got a hold of me after the show and said, that's not true. Rosa Parks did the same thing in 2005. And I was a little troubled by that because I read this notion of, of, of uh, Ginsburg being the first in a number of publications. So here's what's going on here. There are two different ways that people lie in some form of state or repose at the U.S. Capitol. For many, many years, it was presidents, military leaders, and others who lay in state. They were given that honor. In 1998, uh, Congress uh, wanted to honor two Capitol Police officers who were killed in the line of duty. And so they created a separate category called uh, lying in honor for them. There are lots of differences, but Rosa Parks lay in honor after she passed away in 2005. And yes, Rosa Parks is the first American woman, first woman to lie in state, the most official designation of an honor that you can have as um, for someone who's accomplished so much in her life. So I wanted to kind of clarify that uh, for everybody. Um, The other thing I wanted to point out is a number of you have also connected with me because you wanted to be sure that I would announce that it turns out today is the final day for people to make public comments to the Department of HHS about Governor Kemp's waiver plans uh, for the Affordable Care Act. And, And the one that's of particular concern to everybody is the governor has asked for a waiver so that he can take down healthcare.gov, the website portal that people have been using around the country uh, where they don't have their own exchanges to access ACA-approved healthcare plans. The governor has asked the feds to uh, allow him to take that site down, and instead people will be directed to individual insurers or brokers. Um, Those who are concerned about that are concerned because without uh, healthcare.gov, you won't necessarily be sent to uh, insurers who uh, provide all of the coverage that ACA uh, provides. So it's been very controversial. This is the last day you can make public comment on that. Amelia Brock is putting up on our website at uh, gpbnews.org the uh, links where you can, number one, read the waiver, and number two, if you want the email uh, address, if you want to make public comment on that. I thought that was 
I appreciate all those listeners who sent me a note about that, and, and I think it's a good thing for us to tell you all about. All right, that said, let's get to our panel. Greg Bluestein, it's Wednesday. He's the political reporter, one of them at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, we are always glad to have you here with us. Thanks for joining us. So we don't have Greg's audio. We're going to have to have Greg. We're going to work on your audio and get back to you as soon as we can. Um, let's keep uh, going. Buddy Darden is with us, former 7th District Congressman, Democrat from Marietta, Georgia. Uh, Buddy, we're so happy you're back with us for the show. Uh, how, are you do- how are you and your wife Lillian holding up in the middle of all this? Have you, uh, you haven't uh, decided, to- you've decided to stay married, haven't you? Well, we've been married for 52 years, so we might as well keep at it as yeah. long as we can. <laughs> a very, very... Pa- pandemic. Yeah, pandemic hasn't hurt that at longstanding marriage. Well, thank you for joining us today, buddy. Glad to be here, back by popular demand. We're also joined by uh, uh, Professor Karen Owen. She teaches political science at the University of West Georgia. Karen, I love the fact that in the middle of uh, this uh, crazy time in which we're living, and now with the argument over the fight over naming a new uh, justice to the Supreme Court to replace Ginsburg, right now you're teaching introduction to American government. We need it more than ever, Karen. Absolutely. And it's very timely that right now in my class we're talking about political institutions and the importance of Congress, the president, and the Supreme Court. Okay, I'm going to introduce Todd Ream, who, of course, is uh, a, he is a sometimes Republican political consultant. Todd, you're not doing as much of that work as you are focused on uh, Georgia Pundit, the uh, daily newsletter which you uh, founded, uh, your publisher, your editor-in-chief, you're the uh, a senior staff writer. You are Georgia Pundit. And, you know, I always tell people, Todd, it's a great site for not just reading about national and state news, but you really give us local news across the state. How are you, Todd? I'm doing very well. Uh, Thank you very much, Bill. I did want to mention that uh, I told somebody last week that I am doing my best to become um, post-partisan, which is sort of after party. But I also wanted to mention that I just did a survey in the field last week uh, that we'll be releasing in the next couple of days about energy issues uh, in Georgia. Uh, that being one of the topics that I'm that I'm uh, getting engaged on nowadays. Oh, cool. Okay, terrific. You'll let us know. So if we want to do something with it, we can. Uh, uh, you know, Todd, tell people how they can become subscribers to Georgia Pundit. If you go to gapundit.com, you will see on the right-hand side in the sidebar uh, a place to sign up. All it takes is a name and an email uh, address, and you'll get me and your uh, inbox, usually about five times a week, depending on uh, how my life is going at that time. Okay, terrific. Greg Bluestein, I think we have your audio restored. How are you doing, Greg? How are your daughters holding up and your wife uh, sheltering in place? I'm great. The daughters are running around upstairs as usual. And uh, I'm a, by the way, I'm a proud subscriber of Todd's newsletter. I endorse it fully. Uh, and the wife is hanging in there as well. So we're all trucking along. Hey, um, Greg, we can finally publicly announce something that I've been excited about for some time, and I know you have too. You have a new colleague covering politics 
with you and the team at the AJC. Tell everybody who's now a political journalist at your newspaper. Drum roll, Patricia Murphy. Uh, we cannot wait. Patricia uh, she started Murphy. This week. It is great news. She's a GPB veteran. She's a roll call veteran. She's worked in the Hills. She's worked in Georgia. She knows Georgia politics and national politics. And she's going to really help us, especially immediately down the stretch run here for not only November elections, but the January runoffs in the Senate race and Senate races, maybe. Yeah, I wanted to mention that because listeners to our show uh, know her well. We, we love Patricia Murphy's uh, presence on the show. So she's a great addition to your team. All right, uh, let's get going with topics. Uh, uh, Greg, uh, you wrote this, uh, the piece. I think you dropped it last night on the website. President Trump making a visit to Atlanta on Friday. Do you know any of the details about the visit at this point or is it still a little up in the air? It's still a little bit up in the air. We have it now confirmed from the White House that he is indeed coming in the afternoon, on Friday afternoon. Um, what we're, we've been told, it's going to be a Black Voices for Trump initiative. That's the, that's the, uh, the group that he launched here in Atlanta uh, a year ago, around November of 2019, to encourage more Black supporters to, to rally behind his campaign. And uh, there will also be a criminal uh, justice policy element toward it. Um, but we don't have any more formal details yet, but we know it'll be a a big event and uh, attracting a lot of media attention and another sign that, that Trump is playing defense here in Georgia. Yeah, uh, Buddy Darden, uh, it does strike me that there were there we've gone through many elections where neither the Republican nor the Democratic candidate for president would bother to come to Georgia. Uh, we haven't seen Joe Biden here uh, yet, but I'm sure some kind of virtual visit is likely on the way. But uh, the state truly does seem to be in play, and the president's uh, team seems to be making that point by coming here Friday, buddy. No doubt about it, Bill. But in my opinion, his time would be better spent in places where he would try to enhance his turnout of his known voters rather than turn voters around. I think, quite frankly, uh, his attempt at black voters uh, changing them will probably not be as effective as it would be if he went to places where he's solid and would try to encourage his turnout in those in those definitely strong Trump areas rather than trying to turn others. I guess I see and I understand the national situation now, but um, again, I question the wisdom of this particular one. But Georgia's in play. That's what matters, and I think that's good for the state. It's still, I think, a reach for uh, Biden to carry Georgia, but the fact that uh, they are playing defense here I think indicates that they're concerned. Todd? I'm not sure that I would necessarily uh, refer to it as playing uh, defense in Georgia. Um, I think we've entered a different uh, era in politics in which, and I had a, a client actually came up with this idea and told it to me in 2018. And I think there's something to it that we know there's no such thing as an undecided voter anymore. And so it's all about voter turnout. And part of putting Georgia in the proper column uh, this year is ensuring that your voters get, get out. It doesn't so much mean that there's a lot of defense being played in Georgia so much as tactics have changed from all air all the time, meaning uh, typically in the past multi-million dollar TV buys, uh, to now more of a, a personal touch and, and more time of the candidate spent in the market. 
So I think Todd hits the point right there, which is turnout. And one of the main reasons I believe Trump's probably coming this week is to ensure that the base is going to be excited and turning out here in Georgia. Because if we think about it, the presidential election could be hinging right on some of these votes in the South. And we need to pay attention to make sure that Georgia's at play, North Carolina's at play, and Florida. We have a lot of talk about Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, but really there is so many. There's over 50 electoral college votes at play in Georgia, North Carolina, and Florida, and probably Trump needs to spend some time in those to make sure he can bring them back to the that Republican column again, shore it up. And, and I want to go back in time again for a moment uh, to 2014. If you'll remember, we spent some time talking in November and December and for months after that about what the deal campaign was claiming to be a, sort of an epic African-American uh, win on their behalf, which was 10 points. Uh, 10% of African-Americans voting for Nathan Deal in 2014 was considered to be uh, something of a game changer. And I was just looking uh, before we started at the crosstabs that Bill so helpfully had sent out this morning. And two things that stood out to me uh, on this topic we're discussing right at the moment, 9.7% of African-Americans surveyed uh, in that survey said they were voting for David Perdue, uh, the Republican incumbent for U.S. Senator, and combined between Leffler and Collins in the other race, uh, it goes up to 11.8%. And so I, I'm not sure that, uh, that, I, that I necessarily agree that there are greener fields uh, elsewhere. I, I think, you know, two, three, five points difference among African-American voters in the Deep South can be, is, is definitely a prize for Republicans to be taking seriously. So, 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 Greg, obviously, uh, Todd is talking about your survey, the AJC poll, which dropped yesterday. Um, and uh, I do want to get into a little bit of the numbers on that uh, in terms of uh, Donald Trump. But uh, he does make a point that uh, you're talking about almost 10 percent of voters, black voters who could be in the uh, Trump column. Uh, um, how, what do you make of, of that, Greg? Yeah, I mean, remember, this was also a mark that Senator Isaacson was very proud of hitting about double digits with African-American voters. Um, what, what struck me, too, is that the, the relatively, in terms of the poll, high number of undecided African-American voters is about 8 percent in the presidential race um, and, uh, and in some of the Senate races, I should say. And it reflects, too, the big concern among Democrats is not about black females, which is the backbone of the Democratic Party. It's about black men. And that's why Joe Biden's ad this week that just aired. Um, on Tuesday, it really focuses on African-American men. It shows a handful of, of, of folks sitting in a, a barbershop talking about Biden's criminal justice policies, because, look, Biden's going to win black men overwhelmingly. But the, but the difference between turnout is going to be huge on this in this campaign. And I think for Trump as well, his visit is, is certainly geared at, at convincing black voters to, to vote for him, but it's also as much about giving white voters permission to vote for him. And that, that's because there's, there's rhetoric and there's so much talk about Trump's policies out there. And it's all to show that white, vote, white voters, that there are some black supporters of President Trump so they can feel better about voting for him. So that, that's the other purpose of these types of visits. 
Um, one of the things I like, there's two Biden spots with uh, black men in, in barbershops. Uh, I'm particularly struck by this, what I think of as the second of the two when they talk about his picking Kamala Harris yeah. as his vice presidential running mate. And they make a big point about how important it is to black men that black women be uplifted, uh, essentially. So they really and, and that's crucial because we know that black women vote at much higher percentages than black men. Buddy, do you want to weigh in? Well, I just want to say that all due respect to Todd and Greg that I think this is wishful thinking on their part because, in my view, what you do is you, instead of trying to turn people around from what they would normally do, you try to maximize the participation of your people. I think he needs to go to Cherokee County, uh, a vote-rich place for Trump. He needs to go to Forsyth County, and he needs to go down uh, further south towards the outskirts of Macon, that's where that's where he needs to turn out. And in all due respect, I think the a number of uh, black male votes that he might get as a result of this would be minimal, especially with uh, Reverend Warnock on the ballot and uh, the Senate races going on. So we'll just see. But I just think we have a respectful disagreement here on the approach they're making. In any event, though, it's close. So it's close, and we'll we'll know on November the fourth, I guess. Some of the cross tabs in the AJC poll about Trump make us make us aware of how close it really is. Karen, uh, job Trump job approval, forty nine percent strongly or somewhat approve of the job he's done. Fifty one percent strongly or somewhat disapprove. That's margin of error stuff. Trump has, as usual in polling, has a big edge on the economy. 54% approve of what how he's handled it. 42% think that uh, Biden would do a better job, or perhaps I should frame that differently. 54% think Trump will do a better job on the economy. Biden, 42%. Now, here's one of the—you can comment on any of these numbers, Karen, but I was struck by handling of the virus. Who would do a better job? Biden's 48%, Trump 46%. And add to that, in terms of approval of the job Trump has already done, 48% strongly or somewhat approve, 49% strongly or somewhat disapprove. In the polls nationally, Trump doesn't even come close to positive numbers in terms of the way he's handled the virus or expectations of how he'll handle it in the future. I think that shows, too, here in Georgia, the voters are thinking, uh, have a, a pretty optimistic appeal, uh, a view of how Trump has handled this. It's not a majority, but it's certainly they're not sure if they are comfortable with how Biden would handle the virus. They're not sure. I think there's been some discussions on conservative radio and other pieces about, you know, Biden didn't. Uh, speak out quickly enough at certain points. He contradicted about some of his ideas. And so I, that may have some uh, place in how voters are doing it. I think the other piece, to just go back to our previous question on the racial part, was an interesting look at which, uh, which candidate uh, handles racial inequality. And I would have said, to see Biden's number to be much higher, but it was right at 50.5%, which may be where the president thinks he can come into a state like Georgia and talk about criminal justice reform or other pieces to appeal to some of those black voters, because perhaps they're not engaging as well with Biden. 
Thanks. I, I uh, wanted to note two things. One is that I think Trump's numbers on handling of the coronavirus in Georgia uh, from the AJC poll probably reflect at some level the differing priorities of Georgia citizens. I think one of the things that we have heard consistently uh, from Georgians is about the importance of reopening the economy and the idea that people without jobs will be more uh, susceptible to all the horrible things that come along with COVID. And, and I think that's, that's sort of the ideological uh, line that Governor Kemp was trying to uh, tow throughout his handling of the coronavirus. And what I can say is that having been all over the state of Georgia in the last two weeks, um, there are vastly different understandings of what handling the coronavirus means uh, for people in, uh, say, the North Georgia near the North Carolina mountains, um, where it's masks nowhere, um, versus what we're seeing in other states. My mother lives in Ohio, and I talk to her a lot. They've had a much more heavy-handed government shutdown. Um, and so people in Ohio and some of these other Midwestern states that are used to a little bit more of a robust government programs might think of handling the coronavirus in terms of big government programs, whereas in Georgia we think of it as handling the balance between the need for jobs and for a, a working economy versus uh, the virus. All right, I, let, let's do this. Let's get the first break of the show out of the way right now, because when we come back, uh, Greg Bluestein, I'm going to start with you. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, what your poll shows in terms of both Senate race number one and number two. But I also want to play a new Kelly Leffler spot that's getting a lot of attention and hear all of you respond to how successful you think it will be in uh, helping her break free from uh, the pack. You're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Buddy Darden, Todd Ream, Karen Owen, Greg Bluestein joining me for today's Political Rewind. Uh, Greg, uh, your polling of Senate race number two uh, shows it's become a pretty interesting three-way race for right now. Uh, we always want to remind people polls are a snapshot of where things stand now. They're not a prediction of how the election is going to turn out. Um, but Greg, you've got Kelly Leffler. Uh, her Republican opponent, Doug, and, and well, you've got her with like, what, 24 percent, and then Doug Collins, her Republican opponent, and Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, at about 20 percent each, right? Yeah, they're all within the 4 percent margin of error. So they're all kind of bunched up together there. Okay, so Kelly Leffler wants to try to break herself free of the pack. Greg, there is a long history in Georgia of people coming up with gimmicky TV spots that they think will grab the public imagination and be uh, the kind of what we used to think of as water cool conversations, except nobody gathers at water coolers during a pandemic. Let's listen to the new spot from Kelly Leffler 
in some ways you've got to see it. Uh, it's about Attila the Hun, and when you see it on TV, which you certainly will, Attila is this uh, very raggedy uh, character out of the ancient past sitting on a, a throne. He's in animal skins. Uh, he's, a, he's a, I think, crude-looking character, to say the least. Let's listen to the dialogue. Did you know Kelly Leffler was ranked the most conservative senator in America? Yep, she's more conservative than Attila the Hun. Fight China. Got it. Attack big government. Yeah. Eliminate the liberal scribes. More conservative than Attila the Hun. Uh-oh. So uh, Attila, in, that, uh, in those growls, is uh, dictating orders to a scribe, a reporter, Greg, uh, she certainly wanted to get in her shot at, you know, people like you and me in the mainstream uh, media. Um, all right. So let's go around. I, you know, Karen Owen, uh, just give me your reaction to this spot it, 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 as an effort to try to grab the public imagination. So I think you started right there at the beginning talking about how political campaigns are trying to grab the imagination. I think with this spot, we're asking too many questions of what does this mean? What is she trying to compare to? What is it that she's doing here? And then there's even questions as does she actually pick the right historical figure for the comparison? Yeah. Um, you know, she's yeah. talking about Attila the Hun, but did we really mean Genghis Khan because there's a reference to China? So I think instead of the conversation being what she probably intended in the campaign, which was She's extremely conservative. She's more conservative than Doug Collins. It's now just asking more questions as, I mean, I've gotten a flood of text messages from people saying, what is this? What does this really mean? And what, what is she trying to accomplish? And I don't think that's what the campaign wanted, which is what are you trying to accomplish? They want to be, have buzz about it, but not maybe this type of buzz. Yeah, Todd, I think that Karen makes an interesting point. Yes, Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins are trying to out-conservative one another, uh, but is, uh, is, is this the way to do it? There, it? It probably really is supposed to be Genghis Khan, not Attila the Hun, because it was Genghis Khan who, who uh, uh, dealt with China, not, not Attila the Hun. But, so give, just give me your thoughts about this ad, Todd. So one of the hardest things to do is to be funny. Um, and Republicans particularly have a deficit in that area. Um, I, I can't think of the last truly funny uh, Republican who, who was not doing it at somebody else's expense, except for maybe PJ or Rourke. We don't have a lot of talent in that area. Um, and that's part of, I think, why we lose at media is because we suck at being funny. Um, I wrote this morning about FDR's follow speech. Uh, 60 some years ago, 56 years ago, something like that, where the key to that was that he got people laughing at him. And then they started realizing that he had just turned a lot of votes his way. Um, if you think back at the, the kinds of ads that you referenced, the old Margie Lopp ad in Paul Coverdell's campaign in 1992, uh, the King Rat by uh, Fred Davis for uh, Sonny Perdue, those were actually funny, and it's it's just something that's very difficult to do, especially when you have 
17 Republicans in a room trying to make each other laugh, there's very little that's more painful than that. Um, and one of the things that, that my party could most uh, profitably do is to start uh, paying for comedy classes for some of our writers. <laughs> All right, buddy. Todd actually uh, gave me an opening. I was going to do this to you, buddy, because you know this uh, spot well. I want to compare the way in which the Leffler campaign tried to use humor. By the way, I think people would say that Brian Kemp uh, campaign thought they were using humor when he uh, had the young man who was coming to take his daughter out sitting next Jake. to him and warning him. The problem was people saw him, Jake, thank you, Greg, as pointing a shotgun at the kid and the joke was lost. But, buddy, let's listen to a, a funny spot that really did capture the imagination when White Fowler was running for re-election to the U.S. Senate against Paul Coverdale and and Todd mentioned her. Let's listen to Margie Lop, buddy. Let's put Paul Coverdale in the Senate and put White Fowler out. White says prove we don't need him in it and Georgia wants him out. But with Paul Coverdale, we'll have a leader of that. There is no doubt. So vote Paul Coverdale in the Senate and put White Fowler out. Now, Paul needs a catchy jingle, so y'all use that. Buddy Darden, that commercial captured enormous attention, and it was a great example of this old grandmother sitting somewhere in South Georgia. Compare that to the sort of thing you see with Leffler, buddy. Well, in all due respect to Todd once more, I think most political money is wasted, and I think this is a good example of wasting political money. I think it's silly. That was very silly that Kelly uh, Leffler had as opposed to the Marjorie Loth ad, because people can understand and relate to it, and uh, it connects. The Kelly Leffler ad doesn't connect anything, and the, the voter she needs to get uh, is not really interested in whether or not it's Genghis Khan or whether um, it's Attila the Hun. So I think it missed the point completely. I, I did my own little poll down in East Central Georgia this uh, past week, I was down there and talked to a number of people, and I guarantee you, this is not an Attila the Hun crowd down there that she needs to needs to turn around. <laughs> and all, in all due, due respect, uh, I think it totally misses the mark. I think it's silly, and I think it's a, a waste of money. This is not to criticize a candidate herself, but I just I don't think Todd Ream would have would have done that. Greg, we're spending an awful lot of time talking about this ad, but in fact, that's how people are going to, people are going to be seeing ad, so many ads on the air, and some are going to catch capture attention and some are not, and I think that's a larger point. And I played the Margie Lop spot because almost 30 years later, virtually all of us remember not just the jingle, but the name of the woman who wrote and sang it. Yeah, I remember it. I, I, I could recite every single word to it because I remember watching it growing up. And look, that's kind of the point here. This ad was trending uh, on Twitter. Uh, it was number three in the, in, the, on the, in the nation for a few hours after it aired. Or it, I, I don't even know how much it will actually air on TV. And that's the beauty of having $20 million plus to spend on your own campaign because they can afford to run out this ad, but also – soft focus ads about her bio and contrast ads with her and ads promoting her ties to President Trump and all this. 
and we're going to be inundated by all these ads. And I really, really the whole purpose of this was taking a page out of Governor Kemp's playbook. He was the same um, ad maker as well as that Jake Shotgun ad, just to get us talking about it. Uh, it didn't. There was no deeper policy really mentioned, and I don't, I don't really believe she wants to kill the liberal scribes. But it certainly got liberal outrage and, and some conservative outrage too. But it also, I think, maybe revs up some of her supporters. All right, Greg. So enough of that. Let me let me turn to Senate race number one. Uh, your polling shows it's neck and neck. You're showing Purdue and Asaf are in a dead heat. And you have a really interesting piece that I saw for the first time early this morning in which you say that uh, David Purdue is really turning on the offensive here and going after Asaf in much uh, uh, more forceful terms, uh, probably because he knows the race is uh, that tight. Yeah, look, he sees the same numbers we are seeing, and it's, it's not like uh, the AJC poll is some outlier. Uh, most polls we've seen have shown a very close race, if not neck and neck, with no clear leader. Um, and so he has been on the defensive for a while. He's been answering Ossoff's attacks. He's been fighting back. He's been trying to combat the charges from Ossoff that he is that he's uh, profited off of the pandemic with his stock trades. And this morning he aired a new ad uh, trying to turn the tables and claiming um, that, that Ossoff supports defund the police, even though Ossoff has said he does not support that, that initiative whatsoever. Um, so he is trying to, to sort of claw back and, and gain the momentum here in his final, what, six weeks of the race. Todd, are you surprised to see that race is as close as it is? No, I think it was, I think it was destined to be that way. I think we've gotten in Georgia uh, to where it is, we're really at, at, a, at a point of uh, equipoise. We've got roughly equal amounts of Republican and Democratic voters, and a lot of it comes down to turnout. And while I have been critical in personal conversations about the Georgia Republican Party's turnout, um, I think in 2014, uh, David Perdue's campaign really just did a fantastic job of doing that under everybody's radar. And I expect that to be one of the one of the uh, factors that comes into play as we get closer to the election is how good of a job they are capable of doing. So two points I would make on this contest, and one is that I talk a lot in political science, and Buddy would know this better than anyone, that if you're going to challenge someone, you got to challenge them in their first re-election, and Ossoff's hitting that hard, right? So this is Purdue's first re-election. And it's incumbent upon Purdue to talk about his incumbency, what he has done over the last six years, to talk about positions he takes, claim work he's done for citizens of Georgia. And I see that's probably going to rev up a little bit, but it, we have to also look, too, at the one of the cross tabs that was interesting in this latest poll is there is a significant gender divide in this race. So if you look at the male-female um, Ossoff is up with women about 13, 14 points over the um, Purdue. And I think that Purdue's going to have to start talking some issues to women in this state to make sure that he can bring them out to vote and continue to support him. Buddy? Well, the race shouldn't be this close. It really shouldn't because you've got a person who's been in office for six years, uh, <laughs> accomplished much. But at the same time, at the same time, I don't think it's done anything uh, that that um, detrimental to his 
long campaign, even though ISOF has done a pretty good job of exploiting the, the stock trade. But what I'm going to say here, I think, is is the situation. Look at the cross tabs. Look at every indication. This is a nationalized race. This is a nationalized race, probably more nationalized than any I've seen uh, in my entire uh, political career. And so this turns on to me not just a referendum on on the senator, Senator Perdue, but also being so closely tied to Donald Trump. And for the first time, and I don't want to get off the subject here, Bill, because I know we've got limited time, but can you believe the Lucy McBath ad where she's actually slamming her opponent for voting with Donald Trump? That's been unheard of uh, in, in the past. So I think tying him so close to Donald Trump uh, and also uh, I would, didn't think had a chance. However, I've got to remember if Herman Tamler can get beat in 1980 uh, by Mac Mattingly, anybody <laughs> can get beat. <laughs> you know what, Buddy's just made a really interesting point, Greg. Um, we know that in the congressional races recently, uh, the Democratic candidates have been reluctant to attack. Uh, uh, Trump. We know that John Ossoff, when he was, uh, you know, when he first came on the scene uh, in that sixth district race against Karen Handel, he was uh, criticized, at, you know, in a post analysis of the race uh, for not going after uh, her ties to Trump more strongly, that that could have maybe mm-hmm. given him the balance to uh, win that race. And Buddy's really making an interesting point that. Uh, in at least the sixth and seventh district, there's enough blue votes out there, and enough of those probably suburban women who are not who are unsettled about Trump that you can actually use him against your Republican opponent. It's a huge change in Georgia Democratic politics. Think about in 2014 when President Obama came to Georgia in October to talk about the Ebola crisis that was happening back then. Uh, Jason Carter, and Michelle Nunn, the, 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 the candidates for governor and Senate. Uh, did not appear with him uh, at any point of that visit. I mean, that, that's how that's how far away they wanted to keep him. Um, and now, and in 2018, even Stacey Abrams, although she was critical of President Trump, didn't try tried her best not even to use his name, um, try to make this about more about Governor Kemp and state issues than federal issues. And now in 2020, both sides have both parties have 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 are so polarized that they're nationalizing every race, even the even congressional races that might not have been as nationalized, might, might have tried to focus on more local issues in the way that they did in 2017 when Ossoff promised to turn the sixth district into a Silicon Valley of the South and Karen Handel talked about local transportation issues through the campaign. So um because the next couple of days um we're going to be seeing a lot of uh two things going on simultaneously, uh, honors being bestowed upon Ruth Bader Ginsburg as she uh, moves to uh, her final burial, her resting place, and the fight going on in uh, Congress over uh, the, the speed with which Republicans want to replace her. So, Todd, I want to ask you as a political consultant for some thoughts about this. Uh, Doug Collins, to go back to Senate race number two for a minute, uh, again, in an effort, as both he and Leffler are doing every single minute of every day, to establish his conservative credentials, sent out a tweet within hours after the announcement of uh, her, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg's death that w- w- got enormous pushback. 
he essentially said, I don't have the tweet in front of me, but what he essentially said was um, that our sympathies and, and we should think more of the uh, deaths of the hundreds of thousands of babies who were aborted because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, a very controversial tweet. It offended an awful lot of people. So here's my question, Todd. How do Republicans particularly play, understand what they've got to do in terms of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, even as they want to push for a conservative replacement? There is a balancing act there, it seems to me, Todd. I, I'm not sure that politics is required in politics anymore. I don't think that... Uh, showing yourself to be a bigger human being than the other guy really gets you points anymore. Um, I, I think this is something that's, that's really uh, come to the forefront in the last couple of years, but uh, there is, there is zero sympathy for anybody. Um, one of the things I would say is that uh, a lot of folks are, are sort of pitching this as a mistake or, you know, he, 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 he blundered in some way. Uh, but there is a large percentage of the Republican electorate who does feel as strongly about abortion as Doug Collins did. Um, and one of the things you, that you can say about him is he does have a good instinct for what the voters who support him want to hear. Um, you know, but one of the things that uh, Buddy said earlier in the day, he said something about uh, respectfully disagreeing or, or uh in, in a friendly manner disagreeing. And, and that's something that, that I don't think we have in politics anymore. Um, I certainly don't think the next uh, few days, the next few months are going to be uh, a display of good manners on the part of public speakers. Um, before we go to a break, Karen, what's kind of interesting about this is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself was very critical of Roe v. Wade. She did not believe that it should be the Supreme Court that decided the issue of a woman's right to choose. She thought it should have been Congress that put that in law so that we wouldn't have the kind of is situation we have now where a politicized court could determine the issue. So I find it ironic and interesting. Now, clearly, as she said on the bench, uh, she her rulings uh, certainly uh, lent in the direction uh, it, of of a woman's right to choose, but she didn't she didn't want the court to do it in the first place. I think if we look at this, we understand that the justice knew uh, Justice Ginsburg knew exactly the roles of our institutions, and that that she has a role to follow precedent and look at the law, but that Congress has a role to be responsible. And you know, I think Todd makes the point there very interesting about Collins is he understands his voters and how to get the attention of them, which is probably why he sent this tweet out. But it's part of timing, right? So why the first thing that comes from you as a politician, as a candidate, is this part? Like, can you be respectful to the person who has died? And then in the next piece, talk on what you think perhaps is what needs to be remembered or thought about as you're campaigning. And I think that sometimes now, we're trying, our politicians, our whole group, everybody's trying to catch that moment in quick attention, and they don't think through that the buzz may not be as favorable as they think. All right, Karen Owen gets the last word in this segment. we got to get to a break. We'll be right back with more on Political Rewind. 
We're back with Buddy Darden, Karen Owen, Greg Bluestein, and Todd Ream. We've just got a few minutes left on Political Rewind today. Very quickly, Buddy, I'll start with you on this. Um, and Karen, as a professor of government, uh, I want to get you to weigh in as well. Uh, Buddy, it is it should not go unspoken uh, that uh, that the president, the president of the United States, who was elected by fewer popular votes than Hillary Clinton, more than two million people less voted for him than did Hillary Clinton, but the Electoral College put him in place. A minority president essentially is now going to get to appoint three members of the Supreme Court. And that really is uh, something that ought to give us pause as we think about how we move forward with, with this whole argument about, <laughs> a, you know, the Electoral College was put in place by the Founding Fathers to protect the rights of people. The question is if it continues to do that, buddy. Well, this is a very interesting and fascinating time in national politics, and I think this is almost a case of first impression, even though uh, a lot of the pundits on Fox News and other places will tell you different. We, are, we know, of course, what happened uh, to the uh, nominee of President Obama after Scalia died in February. Now we're rushing this one through. And I don't think there's any doubt that the Republicans can uh, succeed in in uh, putting one more justice on. However, however, just because you can do something in politics doesn't mean that you should do it. And it sometimes and many times comes back to backfire. There are two H's that my friend Norman Underwood called my attention to last night about the party in power. And, uh, and one is hubris. And to be able to come in here and do something that probably uh, is is uh, maybe not in the national interest, but you can do it because you can and you think that you're, you're uh, immune. And uh, I think I think it's uh, very clear that uh, they're going to be able to do it. But I think in the end, it might cost them the Senate, uh, because there'll be a lot of senators who will have to pay a price for it. I want to get everybody a chance on this. Karen, you go next. I was just going to add that just, you know, this is politics at play, and it is about power. And so the Republicans right now have the power. They sit at, you know, we have a Republican president with Trump, and they have the control of the Senate. So, yes, there's a lot of talk about hypocrisy and the changing of the rules, but this is all about power. And it started in the early 2000s, very clear on judicial nominations, and it's coming uh in full force right now, but who has the power and who can make those decisions to have an influence for the future? But again, I want to emphasize, Todd, that President Trump was elected with a minority of American votes, and he is going to have a, a, a lasting impact, a decades-long impact, despite the fact that he did not, he is a minority president. I, I'm not terribly troubled by that. Uh, the, the Electoral College has some quirks, uh, as do many parts of our uh, government. I think certainly uh, among the things we'll be talking about going forward is some form of uh, limitation on the tenure of uh, federal judges, perhaps not just Supreme Court justices, but all judges. But, uh, you know, the, the, the order in which uh, presidents get to name judges is, is really just more of a quirk of uh, – of history and than anything else. But I do want to say, never underestimate the Republican Party's ability to fumble the football on the one yard line. 
Um, this is a very high pressure situation with a lot of moving parts in Washington, D.C., um, and a, a really strict timeline and other big things going on. And so I, I wouldn't consider it a done deal yet. Yeah, if, if the caucus can stay together, um, after Mitt Romney, Senator Mitt Romney said uh, yesterday that he supports the, a push to vote this year, then, you're, then Republicans will have, have that new new justice. But you, Todd's right. Then there's, there's a lot that can still happen between now and then. Everyone thought that a repeal of Obamacare was a done deal until John McCain gave that infamous thumbs down um, a few years ago. Um, but I also want to point out, too, that Democrats are – in Democratic circles, there's talk of a response if Democrats win the White House and the Senate, and that is increasing the number of Supreme Court justices on the court. And here in Georgia, that debate's playing out in a minor way. Uh, Matt Lieberman, who's a, one of the, the, the main candidates for Senate in the Leffler race, has come out and endorsed that idea. Reverend Warnock would not comment. He's the Democratic frontrunner. He, he has ducked comment on that. And John Ossoff in the other race has said, no way. Um, but there is legitimate talk out there about, about uh, increasing the size, because remember, it's not a not in the Constitution. It's, a, it's a, an act of the legislature of the Congress can uh, add more justices to the court. Hey, Amelia, can you tell me how much time do we have left in this show? I'm sorry, everybody out there. We have three. Uh, I'm going to do this real quick. Todd Ream, you talked about FDR and the Fela speech. He was accused by Republicans of sending a naval ship to pick up his dog, Fela, who he'd, he claimed, they claimed he'd left behind on the Aleutian Islands. You point out in your newsletter, today's the anniversary of the day he gave that speech. Here's how a politician can respond with humor to criticism. We may not get to all of it, but we'll play part of it. These Republican leaders have not been content with attacks on me, or on my wife, or on my sons. No, not content with that. They now include my little dog, Sally. <laughs> don't resent attacks, and my family don't resent attacks, but Fallon does resent Uh, Todd, you put up these wonderful uh, milestones in American history. Uh, he went on longer saying that uh, Fella is a Scotty. He's a Scotch dog, and he will never be the same after the way he was attacked. Uh, Buddy Darden, that's not a bad way to uh, come back at your opponents when they attack you. That's always the best way to come back. And, and uh, of course, as Todd would also point out, as Republicans are not known uh, for their for their humor. And uh, I, I still think here, though, that uh, if they do succeed in doing this, uh, they'll pay a price politically at the polls. All right. We are completely out of time. Thank you all for a really not just um, informative show, but it was fun to have you on today and play some of those sound bites that we heard. Buddy Darden. Karen Owen, Greg Bluestein, Todd Ream. I appreciate all of you being here. Uh, tomorrow on Political Rewind, we are going to go back to the subject of racial justice, 
Uh, the question about reforming or defunding uh, the police, a lot has been happening on that front, and I'm very looking forward, very much looking forward to that conversation. In the meantime, uh, do me a favor, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and go out and get a flu shot. See you all tomorrow.